Thank you, Kevin, and thank you for this opportunity to share with you just a, just a few thoughts. It's an honor to be up here this morning and in humbling, knowing the sadness that hangs over this sanctuary. It's hard to know what to say. But then I hear this faint, small voice echoing in my ear, and it's my voice, the voice that I use when I tell my students and my classes when they're complaining about their struggles to come up with the right words in discussion or figure out how to write their essays. Come on, saying that you just can't find the words is a cop-out. My classroom is one that focuses on language and expression and storytelling. Sure, there are other academic disciplines out there, I guess. But I tell my students, we're in the business of finding the words. And so that's what we're going to do. So thanks a lot, Professor Emerson, for that. Our passage from Mark that we've heard tells us that Jesus has hit the point in his public ministry when he foretells the suffering that will come in his arrest, his trial, and his death. Our Lord and Savior is prepping his followers for an outcome that some of them might have conjectured but struggled to really fully expect, and one they surely did not want. Instead of deliverance from the oppression of imperial occupation, the Son of Man was saying that he was going to be rejected and to endure even more pain than already experienced. After a short interaction and quick rebuke for Peter, he goes on to explain to the crowd that his followers should follow his lead, denying themselves, taking up their cross to be true adherents. He has clearly said that he himself is going to suffer and that anyone who wants to believe in him to follow him to find redemption in him will, must, do some suffering as well. On a day like today, some of us might really be feeling the suffering. A passage like this might feel a bit like a pylon. Hey guys, life's hard. It's going to be a rough road sometimes. And you need to choose that tough road if you want the ultimate prize I'm offering. In the midst of trying times, this can be some really difficult teaching. The Old Testament reading from this week's liturgy comes from Genesis 17, and I'm not sure it's necessarily that much more helpful. It's the passage in which God renews his covenant and declares yet again that Abram will be a father to a whole nation, and then goes on to change his name from Abram to Abraham and his wife Sarai to Sarah. This moment occurs at the midpoint of the Abrahamic cycle. A highly, this is a highly formalized narrative that is just stricken with conflict over the promise of an heir no matter what the odds. It's the fifth time that Abraham has heard this promise. And it happens when he's 99 years old. He's tried one recent attempt at an heir with Ishmael, been told that, that, that the heir actually won't be Ishmael, 
but rather a child of Sarah, who's 89 at the moment. And it's not looking like she's having kids anytime soon. If old Abram, Abraham, whatever we want to call him, uh, had any humanity like mine, then I bet he had a moment or two when those promises felt a little shallow. That his best efforts and all the domestic unrest they had caused had gone for naught. That his season of suffering was weighing heavier and heavier and carrying on just a bit too long. And this before the succeeding episode, when he finally does have a son by Sarah, and he gets that heavenly memo that says, hey, take him to the mountaintop and sacrifice him up to me. If we're being honest, might we at times feel that this call to suffering can be really frustrating, pretty unfair. For those who have read the Bible, we know that things do work out for these biblical figures. We have the benefits of being on this side of history and know that the promises do in fact come true, that he and Sarah, that Abraham and Sarah have that son. That even though he's asked to offer him up as a sacrifice, the Lord steps in and finds a substitute. That, they, that Abraham becomes the father of a nation, as promised. Fast forward through history to Jesus' moment in our passage from Mark. On this side of history, we know that Jesus endures all that suffering that he says. That he also does rise victoriously from the dead. That he does reappear to his followers. That he does bestow the gift of the Spirit upon us. A third passage from this week's liturgy, verses 19 through 21 of Romans 4, uses this knowledge of the full story to encourage readers in their struggles, in their suffering. He, Abraham, did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So there you go. No distrust. No wavering. No doubt. Steadfast faith. With hopes that I'm not being irreverent, I might call Paul's assurance here into just a bit of a question. I appreciate this notion that Abraham allegedly never wavered concerning his promise, but the human side of me has to ask how that could possibly be true. I mean, if there's any shared humanity between me and Abraham or any of the other biblical figures, then what about the moments lived out in the present before they came to know their respective endings. The more contingent hours and days when none of us truly know what the final outcomes will be. Jesus might have known what is coming, but he was God. And what, so what about the non-divine humans, the Abrams and the Peters and all the rest of the named and unnamed folks who were present in these biblically recorded, biblically recorded moments and unaware of what the next day, the next hour, the next moment might bring. It's nice how narratives can have a tidy little beginning, middle, and end. I mean, that's what narratives do. That's what we read in the Bible. They create cosmos, order, out of what is often chaotic about life. What about our lives that 
kind of feel like they're in a perpetual middle. We likely do a lot of retrospective work to characterize a moment as one that is happy or sad, one of complacency or motivation, one of hope or despair. But when we're right in it, right in the moment, and the suffering hits, and the pain is intense, and when the platitudes just don't cut it, when our deepest impulse is to just wallow, when we are in it, Some of us likely have the same instinct that Abram and Peter do and try to establish some sense of control to take matters into our own hands, to declare that the bad stuff ain't going to happen, not on my watch. Positive thinking, am I right? But Abram seizes control by having a child with his wife's handmaiden, and that, but that doesn't go very well. And Peter gets told he's Satan and to get behind Jesus. And I gotta imagine that hurt just a bit. So what do we do? How do we make sense of it all? Theologians um, have used a term theodicy to try to explain the coexistence of suffering and evil and of a good, omnipotent God. In a sense, that's what Jesus is saying in his sermon as Paul, and Paul is trying to reassure us in his letter to the Romans. But as an old colleague of mine, Jake Andrews, wrote in an essay that wove this theological concept of theodicy into a narrative of his experience with a troubled pregnancy and the eight short days of the life of his first son, Asher. The general explanations, the generalizations we develop all too often come up short in relation to the particularity of our moments of tragedy and suffering. So what then? This Lenten season has come at a time when I've felt a powerful urge to get refocused. We've all been through quite a lot over the last few years. We had a pandemic, remember that? That was fun. Since things have kind of gotten back to normal since then, in my life at least, the, my day job has been fine, but it, it's also, things are unsettled, hectic, vexing. Home life's pretty safe, warm, nourishing, but not really restful because that pandemic brought a newborn into my life and that newborn is now a fierce, fierce, fierce little toddler. And don't even get me started about my eight-year-old and his stereotypical teenage behavior. I don't know if this combination of highlights would necessarily merit the title suffering but I've been feeling my age. So that all said, this January brought a little bit of a reprieve for me, a time freed up from teaching, a time in which I was very aware that I was kind of coming out of one season and was hoping to aim for a bit more focus and intentionality in what I anticipated to be a new one. Lent has come at a good time for that. So one of my commitments this season has involved daily liturgical readings from the Church of England and its common worship daily prayer. On one of the first days I was reading in this Lenten season, a particular passage for some reason stood out to me, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. I'm not sure why this particular passage from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5, hit me like it did. 
I'd read it and heard about it plenty of times before, but for some reason this encounter this time made me think a bit more about that notion to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. What does that look like? What does that look like in my life? What should that look like in anyone's life? Now, the skeptic in me has often been a little bit uncomfortable with the word righteousness, probably because I always tether it to the word self. And I'm constantly thinking that self-righteousness is one of those problems that exist in our contemporary world that creates a whole lot of issues for a whole lot of people. But the word self is not in Jesus' sermon. It seems instead that there's something objective about it. Something that not only can I imagine, but can also pursue. And not just as some pastime when everything's okay and I just have a spare moment of peace and leisure. But rather as something that I, that we, should hunger and thirst for. To hunger and thirst for something means that I have to have an appetite for it, a desire for it. Now, when I think about appetite, I recall as a teenager that I would often see commercials on the television advertising some kind of food. And I would regularly think, hey, I should get me some of that. Oreo cookies, Dairy Queen blizzards, Kentucky Fried Chicken. By the time I got a car, I'd often go out and get those things. Man, I, I was such a sucker for those commercials on TV. They worked on me. And looking back on it now, it kind of makes sense. I mean, I was easy prey because A, I was a teenage boy with, without a fully functional prefrontal cortex. And B, I was paying attention to what I saw on the television where we focus our attention, even with more fully developed prefrontal cortices, is likely where we're going to locate our desires, where we find the objects of our hungering and thirsting. So where are we placing our attention? How much are we devoting to this call of righteousness? Coming back to the Romans 4, we see Paul telling us that Abraham, Abraham's faith, quote, was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Some days I know that promise to be true, so true, just as it likely did for Abraham. Some days, when the suffering is there, that's a good bit tougher. Scripture stands as one kind of reminder, but as I mentioned, there's that whole issue of narrative giving us the full story. And living life is different from that tidy little beginning and middle and end that we encounter in great literature. Scripture has more for us in the lyrical virtues of the Psalms. They work a little differently from these narratives, from these stories that we encounter, showing us time and again speakers wrestling with their suffering and their forsaking and knowing that they are not risking eternity by calling out in complaint. 
Liturgical truths can do this as well, offering the deepest of truths that is in language that is poetic, meaningful, repeatable. In closing, I'm just going to share one term that has worked for me for some time now, one in which I find solace as well as sincere promise. It's the word Maranatha. I understand this Aramaic term to be a watchword as well as a liturgical prayer that was used by early Christians, one that literally means at the same time the Lord comes or the Lord has come, and then also in the imperative, come Lord, come back. It's an acknowledgement of the truth that has already happened and the truth that I pray to come and that will make all things right. Nothing, friends, is going to beat or be more satisfying than Jesus coming back, taking all of us home. Nothing that I wait, await, nothing that I anticipate, nothing that I experience, nothing that the world tells me is satisfying is going to cut it. Now, the satisfaction is going to come from righteousness, of the world made right again, of the world and its inhabitants living in full unity with the Creator. Only Jesus coming back is going to do that job in all its fullness. And yet, we're not left to just do whatever in the meantime, to eat, drink, and be merry, in this our perpetual middle, or what feels like that. No, we're called to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we put our attention there. May we pray for that day to come. And until it does, may we come to know more fully what it means, how to live lives that hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing that that is where we'll be satisfied. Amen. Bert is a uh, Dave Matthews fan. And uh, I don't know if any of you are, but he has this uh, really interesting lyric where he describes the space between. There's this phrase where he says, the space between the tears we cry and the laughter that keeps us coming back for more. There are all these really interesting spaces between. The term that um, Burgess used, Maranatha, is this idea really of the thing that you have right now is not the thing that you long for. You're in that space between. And I think we find ourselves there a lot. And it's easy to just give platitudes and say, well, you know, it'll be, it'll all work out in the end, right? Because it doesn't feel like that for those of us that just lost a friend and we're in the space between what is reality right now and what we long for at some other time. Or maybe you feel that way in your marriage or with your kids or in your job or as you're transitioning in some phase of life, you just feel like you're in this in-between. And 
interestingly enough, I think as the church thinks through those things, it sets up seasons that describe Lent or Advent or, and all of those are really moments to look at what is and what you long for it to be. So we start with Ash Wednesday, knowing that Ash Wednesday is we are broken in need of repentance and confession, and we long to have an Easter moment. But we're not in the Easter moment right now, and so there are these like periodical kind of things that come up again and again, reminding us of the fact that we're in that in-between space. And here's what Bert said that I think it, we've just got to capture this piece. When you find yourself in that space, he asked the question, what is your focus? Because whatever your focus is in that moment is what drives your desires. Whatever your focus is in that moment is what drives your actions. Whatever that focus is is what drives your longings. And so there's that idea of what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Can we be a people? I know what I need in my life more is some hunger and thirsting for the right things, the things that I'm longing for, desiring. So may we in this season lean into hungering and thirsting for righteousness, seeking Christ who says that as we seek, we, he will be found. May we be seeking this season.